That song raises a, something that's a, a good teachable moment. I'll, we'll just take the teachable moment. You know, God is present everywhere. He's omnipresent, but he's not manifestly present everywhere. And, uh, and what we're after is his manifest presence. And it's in the nature of persons, and God is a person. He's not a human being, but he's a person. It's in the nature of persons that they only go where they're wanted. And they only self-disclose where they're wanted. And it's the same with God. You can have as much of God's presence as you want. He will meet you if you're willing to do away with the things that, that uh, keep him, where you keep him at arm's length, he will meet you. And you can have his presence. Well, our, our text this morning is from Romans chapter 12. It's basically the same text as it was last week, and it's a familiar one to us. It's Romans chapter 12, Acts, Romans 10, 12, there we go. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Father, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us and that you would show us yourself in your word and that you would show us ourselves in your word. We confess and believe what the scripture says about you and about itself, that the word of God is living, it is active, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts to heal. It teaches us. It corrects us. It rebukes us. It trains us in righteousness. And so we ask, O oh Lord, that as your word goes forth and does what you have purposed for it to do, that we would be open before you and that we would be instruments in your hands. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week I uh, introduced you to some what I call tools in your spiritual transformation toolbox. And in particular, last week, we talked about the mind, the renewed mind. Uh, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, says Paul here in Romans chapter 12. And this verse is clearly telling us that the mind is the key. It's the first uh, step in the transformation of the life, the renewed mind. Now, just to remind you, there's a difference between your mind and your brain. Your brain is a, a part of your body. Your mind is eternal. It is spiritual. And, uh, and you'll still have a mind after you die, even though your brain uh, won't be doing quite so well for a little while. Um, and, and so, but, but the, the, the mind uses the brain to interact in the world. The, the theological term is that the, the mind co-inheres with the brain. And because it is so important for grasping spiritual truth once it's renewed, it's necessary for that mind, that renewed mind, to be able to transmit that information through your life and change your life. Uh, the, the grammar here is very interesting. The phrase, be transformed, 
is something called a passive imperative. An imperative is a command. A passive is something that is done to you rather than something you do. And so what Paul is saying here, the phrase be transformed, he's issuing an order, that's what an imperative is, but it's an order or a command to allow something to happen. And it would not be at all inappropriate to translate it as allow yourself to be transformed, which of course also implies what we have always taught, that you could also not let yourself be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So so we understand that our initial salvation, our justification is sovereign. God does it, and it's wonderful, and it's sealed, and it'll never be taken away from us. If we really have it, we have it forever. But then comes something where God wants cooperation. And that, that is kind of related to what I talked about with the Holy Spirit and his manifest presence. God is sovereignly present everywhere, but He's manifest to people that want him. He wants our cooperation. He wants a relationship with us. He wants interaction with us. And so we have some things to do, okay? And uh, so there's a choice, right? Fundamentally, the choice is either to surrender to God and, and what he wants to do in your life through the mind or to not surrender to God, And to surrender to God concerning the mind is to cooperate with him in filling your mind with thoughts of God, and particularly thoughts of God directly from the scriptures, and then to meditate on those thoughts of God, on those scriptural truths, so deeply and so thoroughly that they just get incorporated into how you live your day-to-day life. They get incorporated into your mental map of reality. And the way that works is that your mind repeatedly and regularly brings the things of God before the heart, which you will remember last week we said is not the seat of your emotions, it's, the, your, it's your will. Your heart is the, the same thing as your will, is the same thing as your spirit, and, and its function is to be primarily your wanter. And God uses that process to continue to repair your heart. Thus answering the prayer of the psalmist in Psalm 8611, where he says, Lord, give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. But Paul doesn't just address the issue of the mind in this passage. He also talks about the body. And once again, there's an element of choice and of cooperation with the Spirit of God concerning your body. You are to surrender your mind to God and you are to surrender your body to God. You are to offer it up as a living sacrifice. Now, this is a crucial point that sometimes is overlooked by Bible-believing Christians. The body is incredibly important when it comes to the transformation of the whole life and the whole person. Your body is a good thing. It's a good gift from God. But it, too, has been impacted by sin and by the fall. And it has been impacted in a different way than the heart and the mind. And that's because of the way that God designed the body to work. God designed your body to be able to automatically do things that have been delegated to it by the mind and the will so that you don't have to think about everything you do. And the the example that I I frequently draw from, uh, because it's such a universal experience, uh, is is the experience of of driving along a route in your car that you take regularly, say the journey from home to work, 
and you get to your destination safely, but when you think about your journey, you really don't remember your trip very well because you weren't paying attention to the act of driving. Maybe there was something interesting on the radio. Maybe you were conversing with a friend in the car. Maybe you were on the phone. Maybe you were lost in thought about how to deal with a problem. And the funny thing is, even though you don't remember doing it, you drove safely the whole way. You stopped at all the red lights. If a child had run out in front of you chasing a ball into the street, you would have immediately hit the brakes and done the appropriate thing. But you didn't have to think about everything that you did. Now, contrast that with driving while trying to find an address in an unfamiliar area of town. In that case, you really do have to focus your thoughts, right? And if you're like me, like I think this is one of the differences, generally speaking, between men and women is that women can handle more things going on around them while they're focusing on something important, and men just can't. We're just like, I can see the thing, and I can't have any distractions. And so I'm driving around trying to find, you know, some place in the car that I'm not familiar with, and I, 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 the kids are in the back seat. I'm like, shh, 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 can't concentrate. Turn off the radio, you know, because turning the radio, I'm, I might get distracted. I have a hard time focusing. And so that I have to put that energy into it with my mind. Um, it, those kind of common experiences... They give us a blueprint to help us think about the issue of the offering of our, of our body as a living sacrifice. Many of the things that we do in our day-to-day -day life have been delegated to the body to manage by the mind and the heart. And some of those things, like brushing your teeth thoroughly or playing a, a well-known and beloved piece of music on the piano, some of them are good things, right? You ever, you ever get in the shower and you, you get, you're almost done with the shower and you get shampoonesia? You know what that is? Shampoonesia? Where you can't remember if you washed your hair or not, right? And you're like, did I do that or not? I can't remember. And, and so you, you might do it again, right? Well, that's because you've automated the task of, of the shower, all right? And so they become habits, and you don't have to think about it very much. But since the mind and the heart are fallen, they also delegate bad things to the body to be automated. And those automated practices also get ingrained in the body as habits. And so you see this a lot in people, for instance, who are easily angered. Uh, the reason they have such a hair trigger is because they have trained their bodies to respond to certain stimuli a certain look from their spouse or a, a certain tone of voice or the honk of a car horn in traffic, and they have trained their body to respond to that in an aggressive way, and they are instantly angry before they even have time to think and go, is that something I actually ought to be angry about? They're angry even if they're trying to figure out how not to be angry at those things, even if they want to change. Uh, I... I, I it works the same way in, the, in the regards to sexual lust or to fear or to gluttony or to talking too much or to pride and wounded pride or to lying or to any addiction. All of those things are, are evil that was farmed out from the heart and soul or the heart and uh, mind to the body and automated there. 
And so we find that our bodies have then been trained so that they are poised to do evil before we even have a chance to think about it. And, and this is a problem that has bedeviled me my whole life. I can remember um, uh, very clearly uh, back in about 1995, and my brother lived about three hours south of me in, in rural Kentucky, and, uh, and I was driving back from my visit with him, and I was pondering the fact that most of my persistent sin problems seemed to happen when I was on what I called autopilot. That's what I called it then. I was on autopilot. And, and most of the sins that I committed in a given day weren't things that I had thought about carefully and decided to do and then planned and executed. Rather, they happened as I was just going about my normal daily life and I encountered a person or a situation uh, that, that sort of tripped my trigger. And I responded sinfully before I even had a chance to think about it and try and formulate a different and better response. And for the life of me, I could not figure out how to address that problem. And maybe you've, maybe you've done that too, right? Maybe that's you too. We, we can see this exact same thing, if we're, we look carefully at the scriptures, we can see this exact same thing in the life of Peter, uh, particularly in the events leading up to the cross. In Matthew chapter 26, after the, the Lord's Supper in the upper room, uh, the disciples then accompany Jesus to the Mount of Olives, and he tells them, you will all fall away because of me tonight. And what does Peter say? Peter says, no, Lord, even if these other guys, I know they're kind of clowns, even if these other guys fall away because of you, I will never do that. And Jesus looks at him and he says, Peter, before the rooster has crowed twice at dawn, you will deny me three times. You will deny you even know me three separate times. And Peter looks at him and says, even if I have to die with you, Lord, I will not deny you. And the rest of the disciples, says Matthew, the rest of the disciples said the same thing. Now, Peter sincerely meant that. That was the intention of his heart, his spirit. And Jesus tells Peter and the others to watch and pray. He says, watch and pray that you do not enter temptation. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't even want them to be put in a situation where they're in temptation. They, he, he says, you need to pray that, that what I taught in the Lord's Prayer, Father, lead us not into temptation, all right? Uh, he doesn't want to just avoid sin. He does that. He wants to avoid even being put in a place that makes sin easier, a place of temptation, and then Jesus gives his analysis of their situation in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 41. He says, watch and pray that you do not enter temptation for the spirit is indeed willing. Hey, Jesus said, I know you're sincere in articulating your desire not to deny me. You're not faking it. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. You see, Jesus recognized that they meant what they said. Now, the, the term flesh here, uh, Jesus isn't talking about their sinful nature. If the spirit is willing and the sinful nature is weak, you're actually in a good place to be able to obey God, not a bad place. That was not the situation here. By flesh here, Jesus is referring to the natural powers on their own apart from God. 
And of course, the body is the container or the location of all of those natural powers. And, and, and it's how those powers work their way out in the physical world. It's been trained by a lifelong process to respond before they can think. And so what Jesus is saying here is, I know you want to stand with me in my hour of agony and sorrow, but you will not be able to do that in the right way if you are put to the test. Because you are not yet in a position to reliably carry out your intentions when you're under duress because your natural powers aren't up to the task. They have not been sufficiently reformed and strengthened by grace. So your only hope is to avoid, your only hope to avoid the wrong thing in this situation would be not to be ever put in a situation of temptation at all. So you should ask God to keep you out of a situation where you can even be tempted. And they couldn't even manage that. Because as uh, Matthew 26, 43 says, their eyes were heavy. They were too sleepy to pray. And so when the trial comes, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? Peter initially was going to make good on his promise as he understood it. He took out his sword and he started lopping off ears. And, and Jesus is like, that's not the way we do things here, Peter. Put your sword away. Now, Peter, who was willing to kill and die in battle, all of a sudden is like, what, I'm supposed to stand here and just get slaughtered? And Jesus is like, look at me. I could have 10,000 angels down here in a heartbeat taking care of this whole situation. But I'm, I'm entrusting myself to God, and I'm doing his will. And Peter was not prepared yet to be able to say the same thing. And so when the trial came... And it didn't work out the way Peter had been preparing himself to work it out. He, all of his courage left him. And he had a stress response, which is a body issue. And, and his tongue moved before he could even bring his mind and his will and the words of Jesus that had been spoken to him to bear on the situation. And he denied Christ three times before he could try and figure out how to carry out the intentions of his willing spirit or his heart. And the minute the rooster crowed, what does it say in Matthew 26? It says he remembered what Jesus had said. It was only then that he realized what he had done, and he wept bitterly, and he ran away. You see, his brain was so full of stress hormones that he didn't even remember the conversation he had had with Jesus just a few hours before until that rooster crow reminded him. That's what Matthew 26, 75 says. So Paul refers to this process of the body responding sinfully before the renewed mind and the renewed will can even catch up and consider changing course. He refers to that in Romans 7, 5 as the motions of sin in our members. And, and that's the way the King James Version puts it. And I, and I actually like that translation better than the more modern translations on this particular verse. The motions of sin in your members. Now, we're going to be using that word members today a lot. What do, we don't talk about the body that way much anymore. What are your members? They're your body parts. So Paul is talking about sin has a momentum within our body parts to carry out its will. And this, if we understand this, this is where we can really come to understand what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 7 when he talks about not even being able to understand his own actions. 
In Romans chapter 7 and verse 15, he says, For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I have the desire to do what is good, but not the ability to carry it out. Or in the words of Jesus, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And when I sin, says Paul, it's no longer therefore I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. That's verse 20. For I delight, he says, in the law of God in my inner being. And what's his inner being? That's his renewed heart and his renewed mind. But I see in my members, that is my body parts, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Now this is important. And then he says, and if you've got any grasp of grace at all, you've said something like this. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, Paul's insights here on the way the human being actually functions are simply stunning. They are deeply profound. Because of the body's ability to function at a fairly sophisticated level without constant direction from the mind, our whole existence before we came to Christ was one long training of the body in the habits of sin. And that has a kind of momentum, says Paul, that carries those habits of sin into the world. After we are converted, our regenerated mind wants to obey God. Our partially independent body thwarts our mind and our will by acting for evil before we even have a chance to think about it. The body itself is not evil, but evil dwells in the body precisely because of this mechanism of habit. And God gave us that mechanism as a good thing so that we could function. If you had to think about everything you did, you wouldn't be able to do very much. You you, you would not have the attention span bandwidth to do very much at all. And so God designed you that way, and that's a good thing. But it's been put to a bad purpose by the power of sin and by the devil. And this is why any attempt to become more like Christ in a spirit-assisted, consistent way has to take the retraining of the body very seriously. The body will not get retrained by talking to it. It won't get retrained by sitting and reading books. It won't get retrained by a study group. It won't even get retrained simply by prayer. Now, all of those things are helpful to one degree or another, but they're not sufficient to retrain the body. And this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, everyone who competes in the games enters into strict training. They do it to get a crown which will not last, but we do it. We do what? Strict training enter into the strict training of the body, we do it to get a crown that will last forever. And Paul says this is not a haphazard accidental process. It's systematic and careful. He says, therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air, but I strictly discipline my body 
and make it my slave. And then he says why that's so important. So that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Now the retraining of the body then is crucial for practical godliness. It's crucial. So how do we do that? Well, it starts with what Paul tells us in Romans 12, 1 and 2. It starts by giving our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Now, I think we need to be both literal and very thorough here. Because one of the things that Romans 7 teaches us, and James teaches us the same things, particularly when he talks about the tongue, one of the things that Romans 7 teaches us is that sin literally dwells in our various body parts, in our members. And Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, which is our call to worship, therefore don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members, your body parts, to sin as instruments. And that word instruments is literally weapons. Don't present your body parts as weapons of unrighteousness, but present your body parts to God as weapons for righteousness. Your body parts are weapons for righteousness or unrighteousness. So James Bond isn't the only one whose hands are registered weapons. Yours are too. They are either weapons of unrighteousness or they are weapons of righteousness. And God calls you to offer up your hands to him and to refuse to let your hands be weapons to accomplish evil. And he says the same thing about your face. And he says the same thing about your feet. James says very thoroughly the same thing about your tongue, the same with your eyes and your brain and your genitals. Every part of your body has to be presented to God as a living sacrifice and turned into a weapon of righteousness. Now, there is an exercise which many have found helpful and I just want to describe it to you. Decide to give your body to God on the basis of understanding how important it is and that scriptural teaching requires it. Know, therefore, that it is a good and indispensable thing to do. And then take a day in silent and solitary retreat. Quiet your soul and your body and let them get clear of the fog of your daily burdens and preoccupations. Meditatively pray some central scriptures before the Lord, especially those dealing directly with the body already cited and emphasized. I recommend that you then lie on the floor, face down or face up, and explicitly and formally surrender your body to God. Then take the time to go over the main parts of your body and do the same for each one. What you want to do is to ask God to take charge of your body and each part of it, to fill it with his life and to use it for his purposes. Accentuate the positive. Don't just think about not sinning with your body. You will find this following naturally from active consecration of it to God's power and his purpose. 
Remember, a sacrifice is something to be taken up in God. Give plenty of time to this ritual of sacrifice. Do not rush. And when you realize it is done, give God thanks and arise and spend some time in praise. An ecstatic reading or chant and walk or dance of Psalms 145 to 150 would be an excellent exercise for this context and put your body into it. And there are a few other things that we need to think about carefully after we've done that. Number one, no longer idolize your body. No longer idolize your body. Your body and what happens to it is no longer the most important issue in your life because you have, after all, given it up to God and he can do with it whatever he wishes because now it serves God's purposes and, and it serves God's purposes both in your life and in the lives of others. So, for instance... You don't start, you stop worrying about what's going to happen to your body. You let God be in charge of sickness, of repulsiveness, of aging, of death. You can count on his presence and his power uh, if, if and when those things happen to you. So you don't live in fear of what your body is going to do to you. You know, the older you get, the more you're like, all right, I know something's going to break. What's it going to be? You know? And then it comes along, and it's not the thing you were expecting. And, and all of a sudden, you were thinking, well, I, I thought I was, you know, I thought I was going to get COPD, but I've got sciatica so bad I can't walk. That's not what I expected, God. I'm kind of angry about that. I wasn't prepared for that. God says, it's my body. You just, you just be okay. You'll be all right. We'll walk through this together, and I'll give you everything you need to be okay. Second of all, don't, <clears throat> don't misuse your body. Do not misuse your body. Generally, this falls into two categories. You don't use it as a source of sensual gratification, and you don't use it to manipulate or dominate others. You don't present your body to others in order to elicit sexual thoughts or feelings or actions in other people. You know, I'm, I'm more and more aware as I walk around. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not picking on the women, but it's... It's an issue for lots of women who they, they use their body parts to attract attention to themselves. And, and very often you'll find a woman who has done this when she was younger and more beautiful still can't quite let up on it when she's older. And so you get all these odd things. I was in Ruley's yesterday and I, there was a woman in there and I was like, put those things away, please. You know, just nobody wants it, Right. And she's trying, she's trying to draw attention to her. She's trying to feel beautiful and valuable and attractive. She wants somebody to look at her and desire her because in her mind, that's important. That's her identity. And Jesus says, that's not your identity anymore. I'm your identity. We also don't use our bodies to intimidate others. And this is one more for the men. That can include brute force or the threat of force. I'm, as a big guy, I'm very aware that I'm a big guy. And if I walk in there with a certain attitude and I look like I'm ready to throw down, there are a lot of people who are going to back down. That's using my body to get my way and intimidate. You don't do that. It, it, you, it can also include things like Power dressing, 
It can include things like sarcasm and knowing looks or side eye or cutting remarks or rolling your eyes and sighing, things like that. Don't, don't use it to intimidate other people. We also are not to engage in overwork of our body. God never gives us too much to do. Psalm 127 says, It is vain to rise up early and stay up late and eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in their sleep. So you work because God's commanded you to work, and you stop working at a reasonable time, and you trust God with the outcomes, and you rest in him. On the positive side, our bodies are meant to be properly honored and cared for. Because your body is now holy. You have given it to God. It belongs to Him. It is set apart. And, and we should honor holy things and make sure they are treated in a holy way. We should nourish it properly. We should exercise it properly. We should rest it properly. At the very heart of that kind of care is the Sabbath rest, which reorients our body and, its, and our life towards God every week, every seven days. We stop and we rest. And, and we find out when we look at the Scriptures, when we listen to Jesus, that God made the Sabbath explicitly for us, for our benefit. And it brings great benefit when you don't see it as a burden, but as a blessing. And finally, and this is the last thing, and then we'll close. Finally, concentrate more on spiritually adorning your body rather than physically adorning it. First Peter 3, 3 and 4 says, we should not let our adornment be merely external, the braiding of the hair. I don't have a problem with that. Uh, the wearing of gold jewelry, the putting on of dresses. Also don't have a problem with that. But um, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. Have you, have you ever met a, a, a Christian person who is so godly? And often I see this in older folks who have been walking with the Lord a long time, and they've, they've often had very difficult lives. And, and, and God has just moved in, and they are so radiant with peace and glory, and you look at them, and they almost glow. And, and the, you know, the face is wrinkled and the hair is gray, but you look at, and you look at them and, and their eyes are young and they're happy and they're kind and you want to be around them and you look at them and you go, you are beautiful. You want sexy, you're beautiful. And that beauty is not your body, it comes from within your body and it radiates out of your body. I can see Jesus in you, I can see you transformed. And it's lovely. And I want to be around you. We should strive to become that kind of old man, that kind of old woman. That's what I want. I, I, want, to, I want to be, if I make it that long, I want to be an old man like my grandpa Neil who was just kind, who, who was reluctant to criticize, but would always tell you the truth when you asked him. But he'd do it in such a way that you knew that even if it was a little bit painful, he loved you and he wanted what was best for you. That's what we're after with our bodies.
Father, I pray that you would take this and, and that you would untangle any knots and that you would make it intelligible to folks. If I have said anything wrong or unhelpful, cause it to be forgotten. If I have said anything right and good and true, cause it to go home to the heart and to the mind and then let it be expressed in our sanctified body. In Jesus' name we pray.